0: Welcome to Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have managed their dead throughout history.
1: From barrows and burials to cremations and kurgans.
0: We are taking a look at
2: rites, rituals, and practices from around the world.
0: Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious
1: or the curiously morbid. This week we are going to be talking about Tibetan sky burials. Please be advised, this episode contains graphic descriptions of deflushing and dismemberment brief mentions of cannibalism and of course death now let's get on to the show all right friends Uh, This week, we are going to be talking about Tibetan sky burials, and uh, I just want to jump right into it, because this one has a lot of content in it. Uh, So do either of you know anything, anything at all about Tibet or Tibetan sky burials?
0: I actually know very specifically in a passing sort of way about this, because in Anthropology 101 the very first class that tons of people of the drop in their undergrad we learn about this and it's used as a bit of a case study as different as a different type of burial because most people haven't heard about sky burials in general and it's a well documented and interesting example so it's one that a lot of anthropology professors tie into so mm-hmm. i know i know like i don't obviously i'm going to learn a lot when you really dive into this, but I've got, like, a passing knowledge of it.
2: Yeah, I'm about the same. Not from an anthropology point of view, though I did take one anthropology class. It was fascinating. But I have come across it in videos and in books. There's a section in Caitlin Dodie's From Here to Eternity that touches on sky burials, particularly in, like, Mumbai and Parsi uh, sky burials in particular. So I have some knowledge, but it's from very limited sources. Mm -hmm. So...
1: Well, uh, what's interesting is, based on the research that I've done, my understanding of Tibetan sky burials is that they differ somewhat from the Parsi or more Indian sky burials. So uh, you might learn something new, Mariah.
2: It's I am very sure that I will because you you have more pages of research on this than there were pages dedicated to this in the book that I read. So <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I'm, all right I'm, I'm here to be educated.
1: Well, I think first off, it's going to be pretty important for us as Canadians. We don't necessarily learn about Asian or Tibetan, specifically history. So a little bit about the history of Tibet as an entity, I think is a good place to start here. So Tibet is an area just north of India, very much nestled. It's a plateau in the Himalayas. So that's important to know, first of all. And a lot of the written records from Tibet really begin in the 5th or 6th centuries, which is when Buddhism started taking hold. So a lot of the written records are from Buddhist sources, Buddhist monks and such monasteries. So that's important to note. So in the 5th or 6th century CE is when the written histories really started being recorded, and at least those are the things that survive that we can glean information from today. For a lot of Tibet's history, it has been independent, but it's also been intermittently under the control or power of other entities as well. So I'll go through those very briefly. So there's a period of time, which is considered their early history, that lasts from about 500 BCE to around 600 CE.
2: That's a pretty good period of time.
1: Yeah. From about 600 to 842 is known as the Tibetan Empire. From the 800s to the 1100s is known as the area of cultural renaissance. But then by around 1200 or mid 1200s, there's a Mongol conquest. So a lot of people know about Genghis Khan and all that kind of stuff. Again, in the 1300s, so about 100 years later, they regain their independence. This lasts from about the 1300s to the 1700s. At that time, there is a dynasty in China that actually takes control of the area. And this period lasts from about 1700 to about 1900. And at that point, they have de facto independence for about 40 years or so. And then in the 1950s, the People's Republic of China gains authority of Tibet, and that is where we are in the present. So Tibet is considered a under control of China now.
0: I didn't realize that Tibet had come under control. For some reason, I thought that they had gone under control of China more recently. I didn't realize it had been that long ago, mm-hmm. and that there had been another period of that in the past.
1: Yeah, so because there's been so much time where they've been independent and kind of their own cultural entity they have their own rights and rituals and culture that differs from the rest of china and i think that's important to keep in mind as mm-hmm. we continue on with this episode
0: i so, mean even across yeah. china china is a pretty big place there's lots it's of huge like subcultures and the like even just within like each of the provinces and everything so
1: mm-hmm so as i mentioned the written records that remain are from about the 600s Common Era CE, Uh, there are legends that go back to about 100 BCE and habitation of the area is thought to be about 10,000 years, so reaching back about 10,000 years. So now that we know a little bit about Tibet, I want to move on to sky burial specifically. So what is it and what does it mean in the context of Tibet? Because there are other places that sky burial, as a general term, is applied to what burial practices mean in different places so so sky burial is a form of excarnation which is a word that means the practice of removing the flesh and the organs of the dead before burial through natural means either through exposure to scavenger animals like vultures carrion birds wolves that kind of thing or butchering corpses by hand um, and this is also called defleshing. So excarnation and defleshing are kind of the same thing. Excarnation is the more technical term. Defleshing gives you not as great mental pictures. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So there are several burials practiced around the world that fall under the definition of excarnation. Tibetan sky burials being one of them. There's also Comanche platform burials. And the Comanche are an indigenous group in northwestern Texas or what is now northwestern Texas. There are also traditional Zoroastrian funerals, which really centered around southwestern Asia, like Iran to India, like that stretch there. And oh
2: yeah, the the Parsi come from a from a line of Zoroastrians, I believe.
1: That's a religion, Zoroastrianism. Yeah. If for people who are unaware, is a religion that stretches back beyond even um, like Islam and Judaism and Christianity. So Tibetan sky burials, specifically. The Tibetan word for it is byaktor, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly. There's two different spellings, byaktor or jator, I don't know what's proper. I looked for sources or like a video to tell me how to pronounce it properly, but I'll spell out the transliteration of it. It's J-H-A-T-O-R, and I've also seen it spelled B-Y-A-G-T-O-R, and that's a word or phrase that means birds scattered, essentially interesting yeah it really paints a visual picture for you of what we're talking about it's very literal when it when it comes to sky burials specifically in the context of tibet one article that i read described sky burial as the deliberate culturally countenanced exposure of human corpses to carrion birds so that really lays it out for you what we're what we're talking about here and this has been practiced in the Chinese provinces and autonomous regions of Tibet, Qinghai, Sichuan, and Inner Mongolia, also in Mongolia, Bhutan, and parts of India. And as I mentioned, there are differences between the ways that it's practiced. In this episode, we're focusing specifically on Tibet. Yeah. So there are two ways that this is really done in the context of Tibet. The first, could be the unritualized leaving of the full body up high in the mountains to be picked and scavenged by carrion birds such as crows and vultures or the ritualized body breaking by a rogyapa or tokden Um, rogyapa from what i can tell is a more functional body breaker whereas a Tokten is also called a sky burial master, who's usually has a spiritual or monk like role in the the burial.
2: Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So I'm to deal with the corporeal and one to deal with the, the spiritual sort of side of things.
1: Yeah. And from what I can tell, not all sky burials have the presence of a Tokten. Sometimes it's just a rugyapa. And that's based on my understanding of the definitions. And I hope that I uh, found them properly because a few of the sources seem to use them somewhat interchangeably. But that's my understanding is the Rogapa is a more uh, functional bodybreaker and then the Toktan has a spiritual aspect to it as well.
2: It's, I imagine in some places that those two roles may be filled by the same person if it's a, like a really small community or if there's, you know, if there's been, if one of these two people is the person who's died, maybe. Mm. But I can, I can imagine that there would be times where that role would be filled. Both of those roles would be filled by one person. So that might be part of that. But I don't know. I'm not the one who did the research.
1: Yeah, it might have come from... I think some of the sources were from a Western perspective. So it mm. became a little difficult to parse out what was completely accurate to the culture and the way that the words are used. Because that happens sometimes when, you know, Western people go in... I guess when anybody goes into a culture that's not their own, it becomes somewhat difficult to pick up on the exact context of how words are used. So that's why I'm adding this disclaimer is this is my understanding of the words. And of course, mortals podcast is a journey as all the three of us are learning about different ways that people handle their debt around the world. So I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, So historically, how have sky burials been practiced? well, In one of the sources that I went through, there was actually a 14th century account from a traveler called Friar Odoric, who lived from 1286 to 1331. So this account comes from the 1300s and I'm going to read it and we may notice some similarities to someone we've talked about, an account from someone we've talked about on a previous episode. So this is what the account says. Suppose such as one's father to die, then the son will say i desire to pay respect to my father's memory and so he calls together all the priests and monks and players in the country round and likewise all the neighbors and kinsfolk and they carry the body into the country with great rejoicings and they have a great table in readiness upon which the priest cut off the head and then this is presented to the son and the son and all the company raise a chant and make many prayers for the dead then the priests cut the whole of the body to pieces And when they have done so, they go up again to the city with the whole company, praying for him as they go. After this, the eagles and vultures come down from the mountains, and everyone takes his morsel and carries it away. Then all the company shout aloud, saying, Behold, the man is a saint, for the angels of God come and carry him to paradise. And in this way the son deems himself to be honored in no small degree, seeing that his father is borne off in this creditable manner by the angels. And so he takes his father's head and straightway cooks it and eats it, and the skull he maketh a goblet, from which he and all the family always drink devoutly, to the memory of the deceased father. And they say that by eating in this way, they show their great respect for their father. So I have two questions.
0: Yes. Can you refresh my memory on when this account was written?
1: In the 1300s.
0: All right. Um, Were there by any chance some missionaries or in general european men
1: traveling to tibet at this time (laughs) i'm not sure but my suspicion from the fact that this person is called friar odorek i think yes (laughs) um so i suspect like our old friend herodotus um from our kurgan's episode that, that this is not a completely accurate account Historical accounts from outsiders are sometimes embellished with hearsay. And according to the article that this was pulled from, the author analyzed that there was no recorded cannibalistic element to this method of burial, to sky burial. So maybe may may have been sensationalized somewhat.
0: Also, I think the major kind of red flag for me was the idea of angels, which is to be fair, I don't know very much about... Tibetan religion, so I don't know if there are angels, but to me that seems like a very Western, or at the very least, like Christian religious ideology, and it doesn't yeah, kind seem of monotheistic. Yeah, Carriers. And It seems out of place. I guess. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm just not gonna lie. As you were saying, the sun, and I'm like, I I know in my brain that you mean the son of the man who has died, but all I could think was like the sun in the sky, and my brain replaced <laughs> it with the like the raisin baby sun.
0: <laughs> the sun so this from is playing uh, on
2: my mind that they're that they're like here's here sun raisin baby here's a decapitated head that will then be turned into soup and soupware, which was that was a twist. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy.
0: Well, the sun from Teletubbies, just like <laughs> oh nom, yeah, num
1: <laughs> Well, interestingly, the things that you have pinpointed have a little bit of basis in actual practice. So to make a point about the the angels thing, I don't know that the word or the concept of angels is completely replicable in Tibetan religion, which is a form of Buddhism. But vultures, who are the carrion birds who particularly take part in this type of burial, do have a spiritual link to the sky. So where specifically calling them angels may not be accurate, I think that the spiritual equivalent, if you can make equivalencies in different and differing religions, I don't know if that's a thing you can actually do, but it seems like the the concept, the general concept somewhat carries over or somewhat exists within the Tibetan Buddhism from what I can find. It's enough of a similarity
0: that uh, a friar goes and looks at it and is like, oh, obviously these bald, beady-eyed little bastards are angels, <laughs> according to my worldview, at the very least. They're winged, and
2: they take it away.
0: The <laughs> yes. They're more like the, you know, like the true form angels, you know, that meme that's like, be not afraid, mortal, and it's like 16,000 eyes and like oh my God. 16 heads and they rotate it, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: That's my but favorite, like, that idea of like, just not understanding humans and being like, I have 16 arms. I'm going to be so good at hugging.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The mortal looking upon the true form of an angel just like gets eviscerated. Be not not afraid, mortal. Ah!" Hmm.
1: (laughs) Yes. And uh, on the point that you made, Mariah, about using the bones in a soup
2: goblet, or what did you say? It's, I said they made a, a soup out of the head, soup and soupware out of the head. Yes. Um, but you did say goblet is what was the quote. So. Yes.
1: So um, that is not pretty completely big inaccurate either. So the big thing that we're going to get to, I'm going to cover a little bit later in more detail, but I'll, for context, I'll let you know now, is that in the spiritual tradition of Tibet and in Tibetan sky burial, the body is not considered anything connected to the human that it once was anymore. So there's not always that stigma about using the leftover pieces for bowls or cups. And thigh bones would be used as flutes.
2: Which I guess makes sense. Bones are really useful tools, whether they come from humans or not, right? We so use, not me included in this we plural i mean generally speaking but in uh like traditional bookmaking, you still have to use a bone folder for folding your signatures which is the group of pages that are then all sewed together to make a book right like traditional needles and stuff are made out of bone
1: because they're mm-hmm. they're smooth and they're strong exactly uh while the account that i just read through isn't exactly a completely accurate account it is embellished with a little bit of hearsay we do have some record of more modern accounts so Sky burial is something that is even practiced up until today. So we do have record of how it is practiced nowadays. So when someone dies, their corpse is generally kept sitting for 24 hours while prayers are recited by a spiritual leader from something called the bardo todol, which is the Tibetan book of the dead. So the bardo todol is a guide for your consciousness after bodily death and before rebirth. So really important to make note. That because a lot of Tibetans practice Buddhism, they believe in rebirth, okay? Right. So there's an interim period after your body has died and before you're reborn called bardo. So the bardo thodol, And this book is intended to prepare everybody for navigation of that liminal space in between bodily death and rebirth. So it's really the guidebook to lead you through and to prepare you for your death and just how to navigate that liminal space before you're reborn.
2: Yeah. New place. Need a little guide. Don't get culture shock from limbo. Exactly.
1: Uh, and it also includes guidance and rituals for when death is near for someone like for yourself or for a family member, for example, just to guide people and really get people in the mindset to accept the death because death isn't such a final thing in a religion that believes in rebirth, right? It's just a transitory yeah. state. You're leaving this body and going to, going to be moving on to the next. Um, according to Tibetan tradition, this book, the Bardo Thodol, was composed in the 8th century and it was buried in the Gampo Hills in central Tibet and then rediscovered again in the 1300s. So it was Hmm. lost between, it was lost between the 700s and the 1300s. So that's, what, 600 years?
0: So it's like a physical book then?
1: Yeah, it's like a guidebook. Um, Okay.
0: Because I know, like, the Egyptian Book of the Dead isn't an actual book, contrary to what 1999's The Mummy starring Brandon Fraser will tell you. (laughs) But um, <laughs> it's rather the it's painted on like the side of the, the tomb walls to help you guide you through. So, OK, it, it is an actual physical book, like in 1999's The Mummy starring Brendan Fraser and like Rachel Wise. Okay. That
1: is my understanding. Okay. And from what I could glean, it's been reproduced. It's not just one singular book, like people use right. this as a guide to prepare themselves for the eventuality of bodily death.
2: Gotcha. Yeah, that'd be a terrible interlibrary system if you're like, we've got one book for everybody who dies. Don't lose it. <laughs> Don't lose
1: it.
2: Right, uh, that'd be a terrible time. Uh, yes, I am. I do have a question though. So for this 600 years that this book was missing, were they still do like performing these or doing the, these rites, reading this preparation guide for them, like from memory or oral history, or was it just kind of not done during that time?
1: It seems that the traditional sky burial wasn't done until around, starting around the 1300s. So the idea, the okay. legend is that the book was written in the 8th century and then lost and then rediscovered. That's my understanding of the situation.
2: Okay, and sky burial kind of accompanied the book's presence or reemergence rather yes, than. Yes,
1: although being- it's difficult to pinpoint because. We'll, and we'll get to the nitty gritty of how sky burials are performed. But because of the nature of the, the burial, there's not an archaeological, there's no archaeological remains left behind. <laughs> yeah, because the bones uh, compost, essentially, don't they? We'll, we, we will get to that. Okay, so okay. someone dies, their corpse is left sitting for 24 hours, and someone, a spiritual leader, or Tokden, I suppose, if I'm applying the word correctly, recites prayers from the Bardo Todol, the Book of the Dead. Um, And then there's a pause of two days where offerings are made by family members of the dead and prayers are recited at the monastery. So again, a Buddhist monastery, everything in the context of Buddhism here. The body is blessed, cleaned and wrapped in a white cloth. And then the spine is broken for easier transport because it's usually carried on the back of someone, a loved one or a friend up to the burial site. And it's usually quite a hike because um, a lot of sky burial sites, or dur- Durtro, as they're called, sky burials at Durtro, are up in the hills. Tibet, again, is a plateau. There's a lot of mountains. And in order to get to the space where, you know, carrion birds, vultures specifically, are going to be eating the remains, you have to get up high to where the vultures are. So it's quite yeah, a hike. I feel like hills relative to the Himalayas. Yes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <geez. laughs> are, are a lot bigger than like hills relative to uh to to Alberta <laughs> or the flatlands of Canada.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh so this procession, which includes family members and the Tokten or Rogiapa and others from the monastery, usually begins at dawn and they head up to the Dirtro, the sacred burial site. Family members, if they choose on the way up, can chant and play double-sided hand drums during the procession, but generally they keep their distance during the actual body breaking once they get up to the top and up to the Dirtro site. The burial is done by a rogyapa, which is a straightforward rendering of the corpse, or by a tokden or burial master, who is a monk that breaks the body and recites prayers during the ritual. Okay. The body is positioned face down, and juniper is burned to attract carrion birds, particularly vultures, there are a few different species of vultures and i'll talk more about that a little bit later it's there's a little bit interesting tidbit but for the purposes of us right now generally vultures and then an axe or a flaying knife is used on the the corpse or the body um, the hair is cut off and then the rogyapa or the toktan begins on the body beginning with chopping up limbs so as they work pieces are tossed aside for the surrounding crowd of vultures and once the flesh has been completely separated from the skeleton the bones are pulverized with hammer and mixed with barley flour which in the local language is called sampa um, which is also fed to the birds so it just makes the bones a little bit easier to digest so as i said earlier nothing there's no archaeology left behind there's no bones left behind because everything is pulverized and ground up with this barley flour. yeah
0: that's interesting because i know other cultures specifically the for some of the first nations along the west coast of canada um, is that they'll go and actually collect the bones after and
1: then bury them
0: hmm, just a to... difference
1: in practice i suppose yeah
0: it's just interesting how, and kind of goes back to what you said at the beginning is, you know, there's different types of sky burial.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, So as far as the the family members and community members, I think it's mostly generally the family, but observation of Gjator or sky burial is encouraged. And it's a way to confront the stark realities of physical death. And people are in courage to do so with the absence of fear just accepting death as just a part of the life cycle and as i mentioned before monks will sometimes save the bone fragments for use in the manufacture of ritual bowls teacups musical instruments the thigh bone flutes i think i mentioned and other sacred items because once this person has died they're no longer connected with that physical body right
2: yeah slightly more not necessarily utilitarian approach, but a much more kind of hardline separation of of body and soul than mm-hmm. I think uh, most North Americans are capable of conceiving.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. Um, so I wanted to read a quote that I found from one of the articles I read from an actual sky burial master. And I believe this article was written in the 90s, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong, though. Um, it's called Rinchen, the sky burial master. So his name is Rinchen. And there's this quote from him about his role as a sky burial master or Or tokden. So he says, In reality, though, being a sky burial master is not something that just anyone would want to do or could do. To be a sky burial master, you need the courage to bloody your hands with the harsh evidence of life's impermanence without ever losing your sense of deep compassion. I think that's a good encapsulation of the process because even though in tibetan culture they have this divorce between the physical body after death and the person that they once were it's still going to take a lot of mental fortitude to actually break apart someone's body not only you know the once but to have that be your role continuously so that's where i think this quote uh, really what this quote really speaks to
2: yeah it really demands a, a fortitude of compassion which I, I think in a lot of places is very much uh, missing or is culturally undervalued, particularly in very individualist societies where, where compassion and kindness is kind of you're thrown in, in as a, as like a weak trait, but it's, it is in fact such a, a huge cultural strength That's such an important part of living in a society with other people and being part of a community and especially being in this sort of role where you are kind of seeing community members out of, of the community and out of their lives, mm-hmm. so yeah, huge, huge respect.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's something that I I could not do, and I know that, and I will admit that. And it would take someone with a lot of yeah mental fortitude and compassion to do these kind of things, and mad respect. So that's a, a more modern account of a sky burial, but this practice has been happening for a while. So when was this happening? We don't know from the records exactly when it started, although, as I mentioned, the Baro was rediscovered or discovered in the 1300s, but definitely by the 1700s, there's records. So a Jesuit missionary travel diary by someone called Desideri recorded exposure to hungry animals as the most usual form of corpse disposal in Tibet. As well, late 18th century travels of Samuel Turner. So again, 18th century being the 1700s, late 1700s. Samuel Turner reported that common subjects were carried to lofty eminences where after having been disjointed and the limbs divided, they are left a prey for ravens, kites, and other carnivorous birds. And sometimes bodies were also thrown into rivers where rivers actually do run in Tibet because it's not in all areas in those cases it's believed that the bodies are defleshed like the vultures deflesh up in the mountains but in the rivers they're defleshed by fish and this will come up a little bit later as well Um, i just want you to make a mental note of the idea of the fish there's a tibetan cabinet minister named Rudoring pandita who wanted sky burial saying scattering the body to birds was a virtuous act of generosity and he died in 1792 And at that time, the Manchu generals did not allow this wish because for Chinese customs, the cutting of the body and scattering it to the birds is as extremely improper as wife burning is to we Tibetans. That's what it was said. So important to note that this is in the time period where one of the Chinese dynasties has authority and control over Tibet. So their traditional burial practices are being disrupted by outside influences.
0: I'm Uh, sorry, did you say wife
1: burning? Yes.
0: That's not okay. how divorces are supposed to work.
1: Y- yeah.
2: <sighs> Fuck.
1: Yeah. That was just uh I was just gonna breeze right past that one, but uh, <laughs> Yeah, just
2: threw that in. It's it's like the the head chopping off for the for the baby son.
1: Yeah, that's uh so <laughs> whereas the Tibetans are scattering their dead to the birds, apparently, I guess from the context of this quote, Chinese are burning their wives. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's just what I'm gleaning from this quote. Um, <laughs> eventually, out of deference to the Manchu generals who actually fought on Tibet's behalf uh, with the Gurkhas of Nepal, Rodoring Pandita was cremated instead of given a sky burial. Um, but after his death, the Manchu court in China actually tried to quash out sky burial as a practice, and the imperial throne I- issued an edict in 1793 attempting to abolish the practice entirely. So there were actually notices posted in Tibet that said something to this effect in order to reaffirm the respect for the relationship between family members and to improve social customs the carving up of the remains of the dead shall be strictly forbidden every human being is as much indebted to his parents for his upbringing as he is to the sky and the earth so one should support one's parents and bury them in the earth after they have died it is a long-established custom in tengut ie in Tibet that after a person has died his remains are carved up and fed to vultures or dogs Sometimes the remains are even chopped up and mixed with barley flour as food for vultures or dogs. These are bestial practices. Oof. So that somewhat confirms some of the methods that we've covered so far. Especially, in particular, I'm thinking the barley flour, mixing the bones with barley flour. Yeah. Um, And this was, again, from, from around 1793. And that is still something that's practiced today, to my understanding. However... A lot of tibetans did not abide this law and that's the reason that sky burial continues as a practice today even though threats of death were made to the people who continued to practice sky burial and also anyone who watched sky burials was also threatened to be put to death but tibetans did not abide um in the interim period between when that king dynasty i believe it was had authority over tibet And when the People's Republic of China gained authority over Tibet in the 1950s, so between about 1912 and 1950, they practiced it as freely as they saw fit. But when the Cultural Revolution began happening in China between about 1966 and 1976, something called the Four Olds were banned in Tibet and in China generally, including sky burial. So as far as the Cultural Revolution is concerned, that's a period of time where the People's Republic of China is cracking down on old ideas, old culture, old habits, and old customs are the four olds. And they're being supplanted by modern culture. That, that was the idea behind the Cultural Revolution, is to make a new China.
2: Imperialism! Mm.
1: Yeah, so during this time period, sky burials in Tibet are banned as part of this ban on the four olds. However, once the Cultural revolution subsides somewhat, there's a return to practices of sky burial in the 80s and 90s. There's a 2009 article that stated that sky burial is practiced by more than 80% of the approximately 5 million Tibetan people and a total of 1200 sky burial sites are distributed over the Tibetan plateau. Um, And because of this, local people really value and protect the scavengers, particularly the vultures. So obviously, vultures have a real cultural significance to them. So they have a vested interest in protecting them.
2: So does, and I I might be jumping forward a little bit here, but does Tibet have any of the issues with like mass bird death that parts of the, the Parsi population had?
1: That is a great question, and that actually leads into what I wanted to talk about next. So, as Mariah has alluded to, there is a modern trouble with bird populations, particularly vultures. So, there's an article I read, which is a, the report from 2009 I mentioned, um, colloquially referred to as the Indian vulture crisis. So, the Indian vulture crisis really began in the 1990s, So old world vulture species are suffering poisoning by diclofenac, which is a veterinary anti-inflammatory drug, which is used in livestock, which was in widespread use in the 1990s and only identified as an issue in the mid 2000s. So people, particularly in India and around that area, were using diclofenac on their livestock herds, so cattle and such and when the cattle were dying the vultures as scavengers were feeding on the the corpses of the cattle and diclofenac was really adversely affecting the vulture species and poisoning them and killing them off so the
2: diclofenac is like cow advil essentially
1: yeah that's essentially what it is it's an anti-inflammatory it's a painkiller for just really run-of-the-mill veterinary problems and so it was being used in a very widespread way through the 1990s and the 2000s. And in this time period, vulture populations of three species of vultures in the area declined more than 90%. Oof. So the three that suffered the most were the white-rumped vulture, which the population fell about 99.7%. So almost 100% between 1993 and 2002. So in a nine-year period, the population fell Um, 99.7%. And then the Indian vulture and the slender-billed vulture, those fell approximately 97.4% in population. So have those rebounded at all? Um, not rebounded, but the population collapse has stabilized. They're still... Okay, they're not extinct. (laughs) They're not extinct. I don't know the exact terminology of how endangered they are, but they're critically endangered. But two other species, the Himalayan vulture and the Eurasian griffin, were less affected. The Eurasian griffin was less affected because it only winters in India and has a much smaller Um. initial population than the rest of the vultures. And the Himalayan vulture was spared because they also had a similarly small population and also because it's exclusively mountain dwelling. So it wasn't getting as much access to those diclofenac poisoned livestock corpses. So those species were not as adversely affected and their populations declined, I believe only slightly, not nearly the catastrophic collapse of the other three. And also the the Himalayan vulture, they center a lot more on Tibet and Diclofenac is not being used, or was not being used, so much in Tibet. It was mostly an India problem, India-centered problem, should I say? Yeah, but
2: birds, no, no borders.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so. um, and diclofenac was actually banned for veterinary use in India on March 11th, 2006 in nepal in august 2006 and in pakistan shortly thereafter so it has been outlawed in the area and it has staved off the complete extinction or continuing collapse of those vulture populations but the populations haven't rebounded so they're stabilized somewhat but they're still endangered very very much endangered and that's thrown into jeopardy in particularly in the context of India, sky burial is a practice, not so much in Tibet, because the vulture populations that continue to dominate in Tibet would be the Himalayan vulture.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, that makes sense.
1: Mm-hmm. The,
2: the, the mountain dwelling ones are like, no, we're good up here. We're good. They keep <laughs> us supplied. We see the crew coming. We know. We know mm-hmm.
1: what time it is. Yeah. And uh, as of the writing of that 2009 article, it was noted that the Chinese government, who has authority over Tibet, passed a regulation to protect the Tibetan tradition of sky burial. And the regulation prohibits human activities such as firing, blasting, and quarrying around burial sites to avoid disturbance to the scavengers. And it does not allow sky burials for people who die of toxicosis or infectious diseases in an attempt to prevent poisoning of those vultures.
0: So did the the sudden, for lack of a better term, lack of vultures, how did that affect the sky burials? Like, was there, essentially, did they return to that area where the body or the fleshy bits was left and, like, it was all still there? Or, like, did they have to rely on other animals more? Like, instead of the carrion birds, they're more, like, I don't know much about Tibetan wildlife, but some sort of other carnivore like a i don't know if they have tibetan foxes or wolves or really big squirrels um that were
1: eating the remains well because the himalayan vulture wasn't so affected tibet was somewhat undisturbed although the concern about the collapse of vulture population does extend to tibet most of the problems were occurring with India so the people who practice sky burial in India were not as able to continue their traditions and I think i read that in a lot of cases they would you know leave the body to be attended to by the carrion birds and the birds there either weren't enough there to get rid of the body in a timely fashion so then it would be decaying and causing potential for disease and that kind of stuff or they just wouldn't come at all because they weren't hungry or there weren't enough of them around so it was really it really disrupted the practice and I don't know it was hard to find information on whether or not now that the populations have been stabilized if they've been able in India to kind of resume the practice but it's really been disrupted by this population collapse so Mm -hmm. it really demonstrates the interconnectedness between humans and our cultural practices and the natural world. So we can't just go over around willy nilly doing whatever we feel like we can do to the world and not have it have consequences on us as a species as well.
2: Yeah, part of the ecosystem and the ecology. And actually the um, in the From Here to Eternity book, because it is talking specifically about the, the Parsi sky burials um, in Mumbai, where there are three towers of silence as they're um, kind of forebodingly translated into english mm-hmm. and it was talking about how with this ecological collapse of these three vulture species you know they were trying to entice vultures to come in Mm -hmm. sort of thing and really having to try and keep the neighbors calm while they waited for vultures to come and clean the body which traditionally only took minutes but now they're looking at days Mm -hmm. and or longer before they eventually have to pull the body down and find another body disposition approach Mm -hmm. Uh, at least that's
1: my what i've gleaned from the very little i've read Mm -hmm. so uh i don't know how much success they have had but i did read that the indian government has a plan to work towards expanding the vulture population to hopefully, you know, make this not, not just to make the sky burials a possibility again, but to just, you know, rehabilitate the vulture population, um, because it's not only affecting sky burials, but it's affecting the disposition of decaying livestock. And then as a consequence, in India, there are other scavengers who are kind of moving in and taking the place, such as wolves. As Christina mentioned, we're not talking about Tibet, but in India, there are <laughs> wolves um who are you know taking this place but wolves are more prone to spread things like rabies and stuff so it's kind of coming into and becoming somewhat of a public health situation because vultures are very efficient at getting rid of these corpses and eating them before it becomes an issue of disease and rabies and all that kind of stuff so yeah no, need, matter how unsavory, they need yeah,
2: no matter how unsavory a role a animal or a creature may play in an ecosystem, it is a system, and it, re- it re- relies on all of those pieces. Yeah. And without them, you start getting cascades, which are not good things. Mm-hmm. So protect vultures! Exactly, <laughs> yes.
1: And on a good note, there was a replacement drug created for the diclofenac. Um, that affects cattle the same way, but it's harmless for vultures, so that's good news. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. Mm-hmm. Everybody wins. Yeah, so yeah. it's not directly affecting sky Tibetan sky burial, but it is affecting vulture populations, and that's why I wanted to bring that up because it's a concern that the Himalayan vultures, who primarily are in the Tibetan area could become affected by this one day if it's led if it were to have been left unchecked, essentially.
2: Yeah, and who knows how climate change will drive populations in terms of their ecosystems changing. Mm -hmm. So there may may be issues uh, in the future, or who knows, maybe it'll help with the recuperation.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the big question that we get to is... Why exactly are Tibetans handling their dead this way? And I've touched on it a little bit throughout the episode, but uh, just as a reminder, Tibetan people adhere to Buddhism. Uh, Tibetans in particular, Vajrayana Buddhism, which teaches the transmigration of spirits. So the body isn't connected to that person, that living person anymore. It isn't connected to their spirit. It's an empty vessel. So it doesn't have that same cultural connotation that we need to take care of it as we have in Western culture, the spirit isn't connected to it anymore. Um, and the That's function no of a person. sky burial is just to dispose of the body in a generous way to nature. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's somewhat of a synergy of culture and environment as well. So the sky burial serves the logistical needs of Tibet and their location and their environment. So the average altitude for Tibetan settlements is about 5,000 meters above sea level. And as you can imagine, up in the plateau and up in the Himalayan mountains, that there's a lot of, you know, rocky soil. So you can't dig very far down. And because they're elevated so high up for a lot of the year, it's pretty, pretty frosty as well. So it's very difficult to dig down. So below ground burial isn't really a feasible option there's not a yeah. lot of areas arable land that would even be able to dig down into so it's just not something that they can practically do
2: right and i imagine if if that's the kind of climate too there's probably not enough like trees and flammable material to sustain at, like an open fire cremation because that takes In- amounts of fuel
1: yeah exactly most of Tibet is above the tree line so there's not a lot of trees to burn as you've suggested I think they've got the only common trees are juniper rhododendron siberian elm and poplars and they're all pretty small and not suitable for that high intensity burning that you need to do a cremation So as you can imagine, there's a practical application to the the sky burial as a way, as a means of disposing of the body, but it also gels with their religious or spiritual beliefs too. So it's not just the culture informing the practice, and it's not just the environment informing the practice. I think it's very much a combination of both. And that's not something that we see replicated in a lot of other places, especially like in North America there's a lot of diggable soil so we can bury people underground if we lived up in the mountains maybe we would have a different view on things but
2: interesting too because i i think that at least when i was growing up in my memories of any sort of talk around body disposition is that there's a real disconnect ecologically speaking about our bodies and the roles that they play in environments because i made a couple of uneducated attempts to go vegetarian during my childhood living with my blue collar meat eating family Mm -hmm. and kind of being shot down with this logic that we eat animals and then when we die our bodies either become food for plants that animals eat or becomes food for animals but that does not gel with a burial cremation only style of body disposition right where you're sealing a body up or you're reducing it to a basic form of carbon. Mm -hmm. So something like sky burial, at least for me, jives a lot more with environmental and ethical concerns about being a member of an ecological system. So like I get it. I'm here for it. It's high on my list of preferred body disposition methods.
1: Yeah, and actually, I I was thinking about this as I was doing the research of this episode, because, because it's so outside of my experience and cultural understanding of death. I thought it was interesting to research, first of all, but also I wanted to confront something that I was unfamiliar with and something that gave me that initial knee-jerk reaction of, oh, like, I wouldn't want that for myself. But through the course of researching this episode, I think I changed my mind a little bit because it is quite natural to return to nature. I mean, if a human were just to collapse out in the wilderness, there would probably be that animals would come and eat the body. And that is the natural way of things. As humans, we very much removed ourselves from the natural world. But that's how it is in, in much of nature. And what's the difference between vultures eating my dead body or maggots, right? Yeah. Why do we Accept one, but not accept the other. Because one's sealed in a box underground. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't want to be pumped full of chemicals. I think that's what I've uh, come to realize throughout doing the research for this episode is it seems very unnatural to me. I don't want to be preserved with formaldehyde
0: yeah i think that's kind of the appeal of just like the the simple wooden box you and the box rot and become compost and kind of re-enter the the circle of life (laughs) (laughs) there's so
2: much christina singing in this episode i love it
1: (laughs) yeah as children of the 90s i feel like the lion king (laughs) was very much our childhood
2: oh absolutely it's i think Uh, it's interesting too that through this research that it did kind of change your mind. You need to to kind of reorient position on personal relationship with the potential of your of your body without you in
1: it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would go full you know sky burial me and feed me to the vultures, but I don't have that same initial knee jerk reaction to the concept of it anymore. Like I said, not sure if it's for me, but I can understand why people do it. And I will say though. The research for this episode really made me appreciate vultures (laughs) as a species. I think they're fucking cool. They're so
0: cool. They're so Um, cool. In our unaired episode zero, you asked the question, what is everyone's favorite bird? And you didn't say vultures then. Would you say vultures now?
1: Uh, I wouldn't say vultures as number one, but they're probably in my top five now because they're pretty fucking sweet.
0: Hell yeah. they've really climbed the ladder. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: Like, I don't know. People... I've encountered people in my life that think mushrooms and fungi are weird because they are basically the disposition of nature. Like they just feed off of death. And I think mushrooms are cool. So like why wouldn't They're I think vultures so cool.
2: are cool? <laughs> and mushrooms are so cool because they just like defy categorization because like some yeah. are great, some are super poisonous, some grow in the weirdest places, and some need super specific growing conditions. Like and they are kind of like the catch-all of
1: everything else. As, as humans, we like to think of them as plants, but they're not plants. But they're not animals no. either. And they're not bacteria. They're just like- their <laughs> own thing. And it, I think that's really, really cool. So I like the uh, the similarities. The the feeding off of death, I think, is really cool. The similarities between mushrooms or fungi and, uh, and vultures.
0: As Terry Pratchett once said, all mushrooms are edible, some only once. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love this idea of... Anything is edible if you're not a coward. <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's, yes, it might be the last thing you eat, such as, like, staplers or deadly mushrooms. Like, <laughs> could survive eating
0: a stapler. That'd be shitty. But you depends would Depends <laughs> on the size of
1: the stapler. I don't know about that. Uh, <laughs> I do want to end on, on a few <laughs> fun facts, though. Excellent. Ooh. I love fun facts. If you will indulge me. Of course. So, first... This is something interesting that I found. Um, One of the articles that I read noted an effect that this practice has on the Tibetan diet. So because vultures and crows and other carrion birds regularly are consuming human corpses, bird or poultry isn't really a part of the Tibetan diet. That makes sense. That's so cool. I love that. Yeah, um, they mostly eat yak meat. Because there's a lot of both wild and domesticated yaks in Tibet and in the area. And mutton, which is the word for sheep, I guess. Dairy products. And sampa, which is that roasted barley flour that gets mixed with the pulverized bones. Sampa itself, not mixed with the bones, is also a staple yeah. of the Tibetan diet, which is usually made into a dough. <laughs> um, so it's like a bread product, which I think is
0: Ooh. Cool. bread. They use it not only
1: meat. for themselves in their regular diet, but also for the 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 vultures to feed the vultures
2: it's i'm here for the for the ecological acuity recycling thought yeah fun fact number two kind
1: of 1.2 so not only do they abstain from eating most pretty much all poultry but they also do not have fish as a common part of their diet because as i mentioned before some bodies do go into rivers and it's believed that the fish are the ones that deflesh and eat the remains there so they don't eat poultry, they don't eat fish, because there's a lot of human remains that are theoretically, or perhaps actually, in practice, consumed by poultry and fish.
0: Hmm. Huh. Yeah. Um, I think that this really ties, like, this conversation about food and death, and just in general, life and death really ties into bigger ideas, that death is kind of a part of everything. As mere mortals, death comes for us all and it's a part of everyday life whether we you know acknowledge it or not especially like in terms of this you know well if you're a tibetan you're not going to eat certain types of food that you might in other parts of the world because of their association with human remains and then you know just it's just really interesting have i mentioned i love humanity
1: (laughs) (laughs) yes although there's one aspect this last it's sort of a fun fact sort of not a fun fact there's one aspect that will make you not love humanity so much but i do want to point it out because i want to nip any ill-intentioned morbid curiosity in the bud so because sky burial is so antithetical to what we know in western or european north american culture as far as burial and disposition of the dead is concerned tibetan sky burial has been a focus of curiosity for a lot of people and for a lot of tourists and Uh. there's been a level of disrespect shown to the ceremony and the ritual of sky burial by people attempting or dropping in on sky burials without respectfully treating the ceremony how it deserves to be treated so imagine if a group of tourists from another country just shows up at your father's funeral how you would feel funeral about crashers. that taking photos and you know fawning over the foreignness of the ceremony itself so yeah if you're interested in tibetan sky burial there have been a few permitted recordings made and in the few that i watched none of them show the body particularly it just sort of sh- shows from a far shot um respectful
0: distance yeah
1: the the process of breaking the body and tossing the the bits to the vultures so if you do want to see it there are things that have been respectfully and permissibly recorded and uh if you're curious that's what i would encourage you to do (laughs) please don't travel to tibet and just drop in on someone's burial (laughs) like that's pretty disrespectful as it would be like i said if someone just showed up to to your funeral so Just keep that in mind. Um, It is interesting and it is fascinating to learn about a different way of disposing of the dead from what most of us know. But just keep that in mind that it's still a, a ritual. It's still a respectful practice, even if we think it's so strange and doesn't seem respectful just from the surface. It's still somebody's funeral.
2: Yeah, it's still a period of mourning.
1: Yeah, exactly. So there's a, there's an episode of BBC's Human Planet called Mountains, which includes a small section on Sky Burial as well. There are a few bits on YouTube. I can't remember. It was an older National Geographic episode, I believe called the Secret Towers of the Himalayas, which isn't in particular about Sky Burial, but it does include like the BBC a section on it. So if you're interested, I would tell you or advise you to seek that out. Or there are archival photos, which already exist. <laughs> uh, don't go as a tourist to a sky burial, please. Oh, God, no.
2: If you're interested in death tourism, there's lots of resources out there on how to respectfully approach death tourism. It's one thing if you're visiting the catacombs in Edinburgh or Paris or the pyramids in Egypt. Not saying that you should go into the tombs, mummy stealing was a huge problem. Don't do that. But like, there's there's ways to do death tourism that aren't funeral crashing.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Important to keep in mind as people who are listening to this podcast are probably curious about these kind of things, like we are. So wherever you go, whatever you do, do it with respect is the most yes. important thing. So thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you learned something new today and you came to see the practice of sky burial in a different light if you knew about it previously or if you didn't know about it before. Hopefully it opened your eyes a little bit. So thanks for listening.
0: (laughs) And we'll see
2: you next time. (laughs) Protect your local vultures.
1: Well, we won't actually see you. You'll hear us. We'll talk to you. No, we're not going to talk to you. We'll see you. We'll (laughs) We'll talk at you. We'll talk at you next time. That's good. We'll talk at you next time. (laughs) Thanks, mortals. Mortals podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at PodcastMortals. PodcastMortals. On Tumblr at Mortals Podcast and on Instagram at Mortals underscore podcast. Our music is A Mermaid's Eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, Mortals. Take care of yourselves out there.